Well, good morning, and uh, happy Mother's Day, moms, again. I know we've said that, but uh, we really do love and appreciate you, and, um, and you guys truly are amazing, and I am afraid of, go- of, of mom goggles. I almost said that backwards, goggles moms or something. I, I am afraid of how that might alter my perception, right? Uh, he finally got smart. I love at the end of the movie, he finally got smart and uh, gave the mommy goggles to the kid. Did you see that? That's what he should have started with. I'm just saying, a, a little bit wiser man would have started by putting them on the kids. But anyways, uh, but anyways, it is, it is a privilege to celebrate moms. And, um, you know, we, we uh, last week we've been going, we, for a while we've been going through the life of Abraham. We've been going through the series of Faith and Doubt. And, uh, and it's been a, quite a journey, uh, if you will, and, and watching Abraham grow in his faith. And we're going to continue that journey. We're almost finished with uh, going through the life of Abraham. And uh, we've got one more sermon left after this one in the series. But we're not going to do that sermon until two weeks from today. Because next week we have a special guest. And, uh, and my wife and I are going to be in Minnesota at a, at a wedding. Uh, but we're going to have a special guest. And it's, and it's Scott Winnig. I don't know if some of you know who Scott Winnig was. He was the interim pastor here between uh, Pastor Jeff, who was, be, who was before him, and then it was Scott Winnig for a little while, the interim pastor, and then, and then I came to Grace. And Scott is an amazing uh, preacher and uh, a good friend, and, uh, and he was, and he was uh, my uh, homiletics professor in seminary and my church history professor in seminary, so if I've messed anything up, please do not tell him. And uh, he, I don't want him to revoke any of my grades, right? And so, but uh, anyway, so that's going to be really... Uh, really great time. So I want to encourage you to be here next week because you will be blessed um, by Scott for sure. Um, but we've, we've kind of come as we near the end of, of Abraham's journey. Last week we talked about marriage some. We're going to talk about marriage some more uh, today because it's kind of part of the story uh, of Abraham. And so we're going we're gonna to focus on that a little bit. But marriage is hard, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Okay, okay. all you men that just said amen sitting next to your wife, you were not supposed to do that. Johnny was really good last service. He's like, no, it's easy. Johnny is a wise man. I'm just telling you, he was sitting right next to his wife. And, uh, no, but it is hard. The reality is it's hard. And, and it is difficult. And, and it's one of those things that, that we, we talk about it being hard. But, but as much as it is hard when it's done right, when it's done according to God's plans, it's still hard. But it's life-giving and it's often joyful. And it's, and it, and it's a great and wonderful blessing in a person's life. And, and we certainly uh, find that. In, in Abraham's life. But culture is kind of a funny thing when it comes to, to marriage. Our, our culture has changed a lot when you begin to think about how marriage is done. And we're going to bump into some cultural, some significant differences in culture today as we look at the passage today because we don't, we don't do things like arranged marriages in our culture. Right, like that's as a matter of fact, that's that's viewed as kind of archaic and and old and 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 as a matter of fact, people will talk about well, we've progressed past that and all these all these kinds of things and um, and, and and so so it's kind of hard for us sometimes in our mindsets to put ourselves in that place, but we're going to run into that this morning. And as hard as marriage is, I want you to know something. Last week we talked about. Um, that one couple that was married for 88 years, you know, and, and, and they had this Twitter thing, and we talked about that. But we also talked about Abraham and Sarah, and they were likely married for somewhere around 112 years, somewhere in that range, which is so foreign to us. It's, it's, it's unbelievable to think about that. Um, but this last week, I went over to Bill and Jan Romish's house as well, and, and they are kind of um, 
you know, as far as grace is concerned, they have been at grace for 55 years, and they have been married for 58 years. And so I went over to their house and interviewed them, talked to them about marriage a little bit. It's not a very long video, but we put it down on Facebook. And so I encourage you guys to go there and watch it and, and listen to the, to the wisdom that they, they present. Um, but it's interesting because you look at different cultures and how they approach marriage. In India, the vast majority of marriages, as a matter of fact, about 90% of marriages are arranged marriages t- to this day. And, and you look at the studies they've done, and, and we look at that and think about, how does that work? And there's no way I would go along with that. We think about, about somebody else choosing who we would marry and spend our lives with, and we go, that's insanity. But in the studies they've done, here's what they found. About 74% of young Indians, that's ages 18 to 35, actually prefer arranged marriages to marriages of choice. Isn't that interesting? They prefer that somebody else chooses who they're going to marry. And that somebody else is usually mom and dad, right? And so, so they prefer that. And, you know, we hear that, what, what in the world? And 90% of them are arranged marriages. And, and, and then you begin to look at it and you think, you think that, that cannot possibly be a good thing. But then you look at the divorce statistics. And only about 10% of marriages in India end in divorce. Think about that for a minute. The, the, the divorce rate in, in marriages here in the States is, is right around 50%, give or take, depending on what study you look at and when you look at it. It's right around, right around 50%. Their divorce rate is like 10%. Now, there's certainly other factors. Uh, sorry, my nose is like uh, going to sneeze, so I think I'll make it. <laughs> but you look, sure, there's other factors that play into that, the, the, the low divorce rate. But, but it is interesting to look and go, wow, 90% of marriages in India are arranged marriages. Only 10% of marriages end in divorce. And you might begin to think, okay, but are they, are they happy in their marriage? Are they finding joy in their marriage? And, and when, they, when they've done comparative studies in that regard, they find virtually no difference between, between people being happy in their marriage, whether it's an arranged marriage or not. In other words, they're just as happy as everybody else. They get divorced far less. And they let somebody else choose who they're going to marry. I don't know what that says to you, but all the moms are going, I knew it. I knew I knew who my kids should marry. And I'm going to arrange their marriage. And I've got it all figured out. And, and you, you, all the moms are real excited because they're going, I get to play matchmaker. I'm, we're moving to India, right? <laughs> That's not, I'm not suggesting we do that, by the way. I'm not suggesting we do that. But maybe, maybe we might think if you are younger, and if, you're, if marriage is at some point still in your future, you might consider listening well to those who have gone before you, right? Mom and dad might have some wise counsel to give to you. It wasn't that long ago my, my daughter got married, and it wasn't long after that. She came to me, and she's talked to me about, about her boyfriend in high school, and she's like, Dad, you were so right. And I was like, I knew it. I knew she would tell me I was right someday, Right? And so, so if you're young, get past your ideas about, about knowing better who you should marry than mom and dad, because mom and dad probably know you better than you know yourself, and they are certainly have been around a little bit longer and might have some good counsel for you as you make that decision about who you're going to marry if you are young. But we, we find this, this new marriage that takes place in the text today with Abraham, and, and not that he gets married, but his son Isaac gets married, 
in chapter 24 of Genesis. And if you have your Bibles, turn there and follow along. We'll also put the text on the screen for you as well. But it starts out this way. It says, Abraham was now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his house, the one in charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh, and I want, to, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not, you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom, whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now think about Abraham's journey again, right? He, and I know hopefully you know this journey by now if you've, if you've been coming throughout this series. But God gives him this promise. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you people, right? I'm going to give you a nation. And, and, and it's going to be your family. It's going to come from your seed. And so he promises him these three things. And, and God shows him the land. And he goes into the land. And, and he goes through all these, different, all these different things along the way. He leaves the land, comes back to the land, tries to figure things out on his own. God eventually, after a long period of time, gives him Isaac, right? And, and Isaac is born, and that's God's answer to his promise in the flesh. But then even last week, as we approached, as we're approaching the end of, of, of Abraham's life, we, we witnessed the end of Sarah's life. And, and Abraham buys a piece of property in the land. He has seen God answer prayer and answer his promises, if you will, through Isaac. And, and Abraham knows that God is a faithful God, that he will bring about his promises just like he said he would. And, and so he buys this piece of property to bury his wife in. And it's a down payment on what God will eventually fulfill in, in fulfilling the promise in total. But for the time being, Abraham has now learned that God fulfills his promises when God's ready. And in the way God's ready to do it. And how God's ready to do it. And so he, he knows that the promise will be fulfilled. So he buys land, making a down payment, if you will, on the land knowing that God will eventually grant that promise and fulfill that promise. And then he, and then he goes into, and perhaps it's, it's that whole experience that leads him into t- today's text as he, as he begins to think about, wow, my life is really changing. You know, my wife is now passed. And, and, and he begins to think about God fulfilling his promise to, to have uh, children and things like that, and he's already provided Isaac. But then there's Isaac, who's probably about 40 years old right now, and, and, he, and Abraham looks at him and says, and says, Isaac's got no wife. Like, how is this all gonna, how is this all gonna work out? I, Isaac needs a wife. And so, and so he begins to think about, I need to get Isaac a wife. That's, that's my, the, the thing that I now have to work on. And so Abraham begins to put a plan in motion because his stage of life is changing and his perspective on life is changing. And he recognizes that there's something else that must change. Because here's the reality. Sometimes life change brings mission change. Sometimes life change brings mission change. And this is what Abraham was experiencing. And, and many of us are experiencing this right now. It seems like spring brings all of these things, right? You know, we have kids graduating from high school or college, right? And they're, and they're going on to this, this new place in life, this new way of doing it. And, and for some parents, it might be their first or their last or their middle or whatever. And, and, but it's, it's a change in life. It's certainly a change for, for the kid who's going through that process. 
And you begin to think about when they go through that process, they, they have to look at things differently. Their perspective changes. Their responsibilities change. Their situation in life changes. Maybe they begin to think more seriously about, about marriage, and then eventually maybe they do get married, right? And, and you get married, and when you get married, your life changes. Your perspective changes, and, and hopefully in a, in, a, in a really positive way, but you begin to think about what it is and how you serve God, and that changes as well. And then you have kids, and that changes everything. And as, you know, we dedicate these, these children, and, and it's, 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 it's not... Uh, you know, Drew and Cammie's first, it's, it's your guys' only, but, but we, we, we dedicate these kids, but it changes your perspective on the world, right? And you have a mission, you have this, the, these kids, and you begin to think, what am I going to do? How am I going to raise these children? And your mission in life seems to be surrounded, or seems to surround those children. Because you begin to think, I need to raise this child in a way that glorifies and honors God. And that becomes your primary mission in life. I know it has very much been mine for many years now. As I look at these kids and go, someday these kids are going to move out of my house. Like, how do I raise them so that they're, they're like halfway decent human beings who love Jesus? Like, that's my whole goal. But then you get to the point where they graduate from high school, and then, and then, you know, maybe they stick around for college, maybe they go off to college. They go off to college, and you begin to think, oh, man, are they prepared for that? Have I done a good job of, of raising them so they can make good, God-honoring decisions in that context? And, and, and maybe they get married, and then you're looking at them and go, oh, my goodness. You, and you go from being the one who is investing in their lives every single day to being the one, and this is actually kind of a cool thing for those of you who are still looking at sending your kids off. Like, then, then you become the one that they call because they're like, they call and they're like, we have to get insurance on the car. How do we do that? And all of a sudden, you know something. It's so cool. It's like, you were so dumb. And then now, and then they graduate, and then, and then they have to, and they maybe get married or something, and all of a sudden, they've got to do these things. And first of all, you're thinking, they're going to be off my insurance. Yes! right? And then you're also thinking, but they have no idea what to do, and I actually know something in their world again. I, I've become smart, right? And so your, your, your life changes in how you communicate with them, and how you invest in them, and, 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 and your relationship to them. Your mission changes. And even if they're young and married, you begin to think about, like, that thing, grandkids. You begin to think about grandkids, and maybe you're already to the point. You've sent the kids off. They've gotten married, and now they've got kids, and now your grandma and grandpa, guess what? Your mission changed again, didn't it? Your mission changed again. Your overall mission to glorify and honor God, to serve him and to love him stays the same, but these little missions along the way as you go through life stages changes. And Abraham had probably experienced this, and maybe some of you have experienced it as well. He lost his wife. And a lot of times, when people lose a spouse, you know, there's certainly a significant amount of mourning. And sometimes they think, oh, I don't even know how to function without my spouse. Like, how do I, how do I live? Especially if they've been married a really, really long time. And, 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 and they begin to think, like, is this, I, I've kind of lost my sense of purpose in life. I, I've lost my sense of direction, my sense of, of mission. It, it, it kind of disappears a little bit. But I, I just want to challenge you to begin to rethink that because as your life changes 
and, and, and we mourn the losses of what was before, whether it's our kids being at home and now they're at home, our kids getting married, or, or whatever the case might be, the loss of a spouse. We mourn all those things, the loss of the thing that was, but it presents a new mission for us as we move forward. And perhaps because of what Abraham had recently lost, he begins to look at Isaac and he goes, I have a new mission, and my mini mission right now that I need to focus on is i got to get that kid married. I got to find him a wife. And so he begins to put that into action. And he begins to think, okay, how do we do this? So Abraham uses the resources he has, right? Specifically his servant and his wealth to further the mission of God put on him. And he, and he does it by finding a wife for his son. In verse 5 it says this. It says, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son to the country you came from. Listen to Abraham's answer. He says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. And they, they continue the conversation, and just two verses later, in verse 8, he says this, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. I want you to think about this. I mean, this is, this is a crazy circumstance, Right? I mean, here's Abraham, he's looking at his son and he's going, I need to get my son married. God is fulfilling his promise of of people and a nation through my son. God has made that abundantly clear, but my son needs a wife. And he says, I don't, and he he tells his servant, it can't be a woman from the the Canaanites. It can't be one of the Canaanite daughters. It can't be one of them. And we look at that, we go, why? What's the, why is that such an issue? And there's other places in scripture where it tells Israel, you know, as they become a nation, hey, don't intermarry with these other groups. And sometimes we look at that and we go, we go, oh, is that like a racist thing? It's not a racist thing. It's not at all a racist thing. It's, it's a character and culture thing. In other words, Abraham's looking at the Canaanites. He's going, he's going these, are not, these are not the people. That, they don't have the values and the, and the system of values that, that the woman who marries my son needs to have. So go back to my people, because I know the culture they come from. I know the values they have. Go back and find a wife there, so that it'll match the culture, the, the values and the culture that my son is to have for him and for his family and for his people. And I just want to challenge you that this should be the case still today. As we begin to think about our children and who they marry, too often in our culture, this whole idea is so foreign to us that we, we base everything so much on, you know, call it chemistry or call it emotions or call it whatever you want to call it. We often do not give anywhere near enough weight to the character and the value, values that the person we're marrying holds. And so if you're young and you're not yet married, think about those things. It's not so much, you know, how they look or how they make you feel or all those kinds of things. We get all excited about that. So you want to know why arranged marriages work? It's because of that. It's because parents will look and go, and go what is the character of the person I want my son or my daughter to marry? Are they, are they going to, is there going to be a values match between them? And they make their decision in that way. That's why they work. It's not about how beautiful a person is or anything like that. Can I just tell you something? If you're young, guess what? Beauty fades. I'm just telling you. It just does. It's just a reality. Beauty fades. 
And if you marry someone because they're beautiful, and if you marry someone, they're beautiful, and maybe you have fun with them. And that's kind of your, that's the extent to which you go to. Well, they're beautiful. I have fun with them. Let's get married. And you make a decision that way. That's a really bad way to make a decision about who you're going to marry. That's why arranged marriages work. I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting we go down that road necessarily, but I just wanted us to begin to think about that. And this is what Abraham was concerned about. He was concerned about the values and the character of that person that Isaac would marry. This, this, the woman that he was going to marry would become the matriarch of the covenant, the matriarch of God's people. And this was a huge and super important decision. So Abraham trusts his servant to go and to find Isaac's wife. He says, go back to my people, go a thousand miles away, find a woman for Isaac to marry and bring her back. Never having met Isaac, but don't take my son to that land. And he says it twice within a couple of verses. And you begin to think about why is, it, why is that such a big deal? Like why can't the servant, wouldn't it make more sense? Even in that culture at that time. Wouldn't it make more sense if the servant grabbed Isaac and said, Isaac, come on, we're going to go find you a wife. We're going to go back to your dad's people. We're going to find, you know, a wife, and you can meet her, and we can go through a little process. You guys can, you know, make sure that everything's going to work out, and then we'll bring you both back. I mean, why isn't, why isn't that a better plan? I mean, it seems reasonable, right? I mean, I mean, you think about the other plan. The other plan is, the plan that they're going to do is, we're going to go a thousand miles away, go get him a wife, and bring her back, having never met him. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Right? I mean, and, and, and we laugh, but it, it right, it's, it's it, you kind of look at that and go, that doesn't make sense in our world, in our cultural framework. How does that happen? And yet that's exactly what Abraham says that they needed to do. So he trusts his servant. But Isaac was not to leave the promised land. No matter what, Isaac was to stay put. And you begin to wonder why. But if you've been paying attention to the story, you might know why. Because if you go back to the beginning, right, God promises them the land and the people and, and, and the blessing, right? And so Abraham goes, God shows him the land. And, and you remember Abraham, Abram at the time, right, takes Sarai and they go into the land and, get, and, and Abram becomes God's surveyor and he travels around and God's basically showing him the land and every place that God tells him to stop, he builds an altar and he worships God. And God basically says, all right, here's the land. I've shown you the land. I'm going to give this land, excuse me, this land to you. This is my promise. And so, and so Abram begins to live there, right, kind of in the southern part, and then the Negev, the text tells us. And, and so he kind of, he's kind of living in, in, in that part of the promised land. And then what happens? If you remember, what happens is a famine hits. You remember that? A famine hits, and then and Abram and Sarai are, are there, and they're like, uh-oh, there's a famine. Like, how are we going to feed ourselves and things like that? Pretty legitimate question. But God had showed him the land and said, this is going to be your land. And so what do they do? They do what everybody else probably was doing at the time, and they go down to Egypt. In other words, they left the promised land. Do you remember what happened down in Egypt? They go down to Egypt. All of a sudden, Abram, Abram goes from worshiping God to not worshiping God. Abram goes from being in the promise to being outside the promise. And all of a sudden, he's lying about his relationship to his wife, and things are not going well. There's no worship of God. It has harmed his relationship with God. And it comes to this point, and, you know, with finding a wife for Isaac, and he remembers how that went last time he left the promised land. 
And he begins to think, you know what? This leaving the promise is a bad idea. As a matter of fact, I would put it this way. When we leave God's promises, we leave God's presence. When we leave God's promises, we leave God's presence. And here's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking, I'm not making a theological statement here. I'm not saying that God is not omnipresent. He is omnipresent. I'm speaking in a relational sense, right? When we leave God's promise, we begin to step outside of how God has designed us to work and how God is, what God has given us and God, what God has promised. We step outside of that, and in a relational sense, we leave God's presence. And Abraham, Abraham, Abraham remembered what happened when he left the promised land, and things didn't go well. There's a history to be considered there. And so he looks at Isaac and he says, Isaac stays put. He stays in the promised land. And here's what's interesting. You go and you read the rest of Isaac's story. Never once does he leave the promised land. Not one time. And just a couple chapters from now, he experiences famine. But he stays put. He stays in the promise. He continues to live in the land that God has given him. Here's what Abraham is doing. He's finishing well by helping Isaac start strong. And that is, the, that is the point that we need to take home with us is this. We finish well when we help others start strong. We finish well when we help others start strong. The, Abra- the reality is this. Abraham was coming to the end of his life. He was much, much closer to the end of his life than the beginning of his life. And sometimes what we do is this. We think, you know, when we're young, we don't really think about this, and we should, but we don't. It's just part of being young, I think. And as we get older, and, and especially those of you who are, are maybe, you, you look at your life, you go, I'm cl- much closer to the end of my life than I am to the beginning of my life. And you begin to think about the end, and sometimes we just want to get to the end, depending on how close and far away you are, right? You just, just, just want to get to the end. But remember, when our life changes Sometimes our mission changes, right? And so your life has changed. But we begin to think about, about what we're doing and what we have left. And sometimes we make plans like this. We, and I, I made these. These are the plans I made at one point in time. I, I thought, you know, when I retire, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell the house. I'm going to buy a diesel truck and a big old gooseneck trailer that I can put horses in and has a living quarters. And that's going to be our new house. And I'm just going to drive around, and we're going to go see, the, see the, you know, all kinds of beautiful country and ride horses around them. And I, I grew up around horses, loved ride horses. My wife lo- loves horses. And that, that was my plan. That was my retirement plan. I was like, this is going to be great. And now I, now I look and I go, what was I thinking? I was so dumb. And now I'm just like, I don't know. I'm probably just not going to retire, right? I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not even going to think about it. Because what I realize is this, that this life is not the life that we look for rest in. This isn't the life where, that we go, man, I just want to get to the end and have all these wonderful things and be able to do all these wonderful things. That's the next life. This life is the life of work. This life is the life that we need to finish well. And when we're finishing, even when we're coming to the end, and I'm not saying you shouldn't retire, but even in retirement, there should be meaning and purpose. You should have a mission in life. And I am going to suggest that you do what Abraham did and that your mission as you finish well is to help the next generation or the generation after that start strong. 
In other words, you have been given life and you've been given wisdom and you've been given experience and you've, you, you understand, I hope, the things of God. You've hopefully matured in your faith. Now you look and you begin to look and, and you looked at maybe those kids that were up here those, this morning and you go, that's how I finish well. I invest in them so that they have the foundation that one day they too can finish well. That's what Abraham is doing with Isaac, right? He's He's investing in, in, in Isaac. He's preparing the foundation so that God can carry through his promises in Isaac so that Isaac too will one day finish well. And so he puts this whole plan into place. He, he gets his servant. He get, gets 10 camels and a whole bunch of, of uh, you know, jewelry and different things like that and all the supplies that they needed. And he sends him on a mission. And the mission, as, he, as, as the servant arrives uh, in the land, he, he, he does this. He prays in verse 12, and it says this. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar, that I may have a drink. And she says, drink. And I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And then in verse 15, it says this. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. Now here's what appears to be happening. And sometimes when we read it with our Western eyes, this is what we see. We see a prayer and an answer to prayer. We see him pray. I'm gonna, when the woman comes out, I'm going to ask for a drink. And not only is she going to give me a drink, she's going to volunteer then to water my camels as well. Now, you need to understand, 10 camels drink a lot of water. Like, I mean, I want you to think about how big those animals are. And they've just been on a long journey, right? Like, they need water. And I don't know if you realize this, but water's really, really heavy. Right? And she wasn't coming out thinking, I'm going to water camels. Right? She's getting water for herself, for her family, or whatever. She's not thinking about 10 camels. But she comes out. So here's the servant. He prays, God, I'm going to say this. She's going to say that. That's what happens. And when we read that, we go, oh, God answered the prayers. That's the woman. But there's more going on here. There's more going on than, than, than a simple prayer and an answer. As a matter of fact, if you jump down to verse 21, it says this. Without saying a word, the man, that's, that's the servant, right? Watch her, that's Rebecca, closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made, made his journey successful. This verse is the key to understanding what's happening here. We, don't, we often look and we go, oh, well, God answered the prayer. She said the right things, that's the woman. But this man sits down and begins to watch her and says, I'm going to watch her and see how she reacts. So yeah, she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you water. She said, I'm going to give your camels water. And she begins to work on it. Here's the thing. A lot of people start things, but a lot of people don't finish things. You notice this about life? And as a matter of fact, I, I think we're probably all still working on this. I, you know, I go to the gym up here and, and, and teach some classes and stuff. And I was talking to my students about this because a lot of times at the gyms and things, they'll enter into classes and then they'll quit. And so I was challenging them. I, I go, don't be somebody who just starts something. Be somebody who finishes things, right? Be that person because the world lacks people who finish things. It has tons of people who start things, 
I mean, we all start all kinds of things. And sometimes it's hobbies, and okay, fine, you quit a hobby, who cares, right? But there's other things that we quit, too. There's more significant things. And the difference often between a person of character and a person who, who does not have character is the person of character will finish things. They will finish what they started. It was one thing for Rebecca to say, okay, I'm going to give you water. I'm going to give your camels water. Said all the right things. It seems like the prayer is answered. But is it really answered? It's not answered until she follows through, right? Because that speaks to her character. It speaks to who she is. And so the servant sits down to watch and to see, is she going to be the kind of person that finishes what she started? Because he was looking for a specific kind of wife for Isaac. If you're young, you're not yet married, or you're thinking you're going to be married in the future, you need to take this into consideration. The most important thing about the person you marry is their relationship with Jesus and their character. It's those things. Everything else, everything else comes in far behind those two things. Their relationship to Jesus and their character. And this is what you see in this text that he is concerned about. This is what the servant is concerned about. I want to make sure that Isaac has a wife who is a wife of character because she is going to become the matriarch of God's covenant. She's going to take the place of Sarah. We, not, we may not need to start arranging marriages. Moms, did you hear that? We may not need to start arranging marriages, but it would be wise of those who are, who, who are not married to heed the counsel of parents and those who are experienced in life, right? But we ought not lower our standards either, and this is another temptation that we find. We find a young uh, Christian uh, girl or guy, and they, and they begin to look, and they go, there's nobody out there that, there's nobody, there's nobody who loves Jesus, there's nobody of character, and all those kinds of things. Can I just think about the pool that they, that, that they had to choose from for Isaac? He had to travel a thousand miles away. But what did he do? He trusted in God's providence. He trusted in God's providence. There's more than you think, for one thing, but God will provide. God will fulfill his promise. We should not lower our standards because we can't find someone. As a matter of fact, if we're going to finish well and start strong, we, we finish well and start strong when we rely on God's providence and promise. I'm going to read that again. We finish well and start strong when we rely on God's providence and his promise. God is clearly at work in this passage, but there's no miracles. Did you notice that? There's nothing miraculous going on here. There's no feeding of the 5,000. There's no walking on water. There's no raising people from the dead. There's no, there's no healing the blind or the deaf or whatever. There's none of that going on. There's, no, there's nothing miraculous in this passage. And yet, as you look at the text, one of the things that Abraham says to the servant is it, when, when he, and the servant is concerned about whether he'll find somebody willing to come back, a legitimate concern, right? Abraham says, um, there will uh, be an angel that will go before you. And Abraham trusts in God's providence in this situation. He doesn't run out ahead of God's providence. He doesn't try to provide for himself. He doesn't go, hey, we'll just settle for one of the Canaanite daughters. He doesn't go outside of God, what God has provided and what God has directed him to. He stays 
within it. He says, God will provide, God will send an angel ahead of you, and God will provide, and God works in the means that happen every single day. God works in our daily lives. He is not absent from that. He is not absent as you approach a financial crisis in your life. He is not absent from that. He is not unaware of it, and he is not powerless to deal with it. Sometimes we're tempted to, as we approach crisis, whether it be relational, marriage crisis, whether it be uh, career crisis, financial crisis, uh, crisis with our kids, whatever, whatever the crisis is, so much of the time, we're so anxious to run out ahead of God's providence and try to figure it out ourselves. Can I just tell you something? You're one person out of seven billion on the planet. If you think you can navigate this world that you somehow can control everything, that you can figure everything out, can I just tell you, you're kidding yourself. We're all a moment away. Every one of us is a moment away from significant crisis in our life. We're a moment away from losing somebody. We're a moment away from the stock market crash. We're a moment away from getting fired. We're a moment away from there being some kind of natural disaster that changes everything for us. We're a moment away from all of those things. We are so fragile in what we can actually control. We control virtually nothing when you begin to think about it. It's all God's providence. It's all God's providence. If you, ha- if you think you've gotten to the point that you are at in your life by controlling this world that we live in, you are lying to yourself. You cannot do it. Abraham finally, after all these years and all these mistakes and running out of, ahead of God's promises over and over again, running out ahead of God's providence over and over again, he finally comes to the place where he had seen God work and answer prayers and answer his promise in his time and in his way and he now recognizes that he has to live within the providence and the promise of God and trust that God will provide that's what we're called to do we're not called to control everything we're not called to manipulate the world we live in we're not called to do all of those things we can provide nothing really for ourselves God however owns everything we can provide nothing, but God owns everything. As parents, we sometimes want to provide for our kids. But sometimes, as a matter of fact, perhaps even all the time, we must trust that God will be the one to provide. We build a false narrative in our kids' life if we are the ones that run to the rescue all the time instead of letting them trust in God and teaching them to trust in God's providence as we raise them. When we run to the rescue, they learn to trust in who? Us. Someday, we aren't going to be there. They need to learn to trust in God and his providence and his promises. God will provide the right path for them to travel. And God will provide the right people in their lives. If we trust God's providence and simply remain obedient, Isaac would never leave the promised land. Abraham set the stage for that to happen. He set the foundation. And Isaac was able to live at least that piece of that out. He did never leave the promised land. I want to tell you a story. In January, um, the Dutch Defense Safety Inspection uh, Agency started an investigation into an F-16 fighter. 
It had suffered damage from a 20 millimeter cannon fire during a routine training exercise. Fired from its, its own guns. In other words, this F-16 was up in the air and it shot itself. I don't know how, I, I can understand, my brother shot himself in the foot. Like, a, it's a true story, I'll tell it sometime, I've told it in the past. Maybe I'll tell it again sometime, but, like, I understand how people shoot themselves, right? But how does an F-16 fighter plane shoot itself? Well, they started this investigation. Now, here's, here's, here's the reality. The Vulcan Gatling gun uh, is, is a gun that the F-16s can carry, and it fires over 6,000 rounds a minute. Those, those rounds travel at a muzzle velocity of 3,450 feet per second. That's really, really fast. I don't even know why I'm telling you. I should have just said really, really fast. Nobody really knows what that means. But the aircraft is capable of flying much faster. And some of you went, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So here's what happened. The airplane's flying, and they're doing this training exercise. It fires its machine guns. And they're traveling at 3,450 feet per second, and the, and, the, and the pilot kicks in the gas after he fires it, and he, and he does what? He runs into the bullets, and the bullets hit the plane. In other words, the plane finds a way to shoot itself. In what world would you ever go, wow, the plane just shot itself? That is so weird. How can that possibly happen? And yet it can. And that's what happens in our lives when we try to control things. That's what happens when we run out ahead of God's providence. Because we run out so fast, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak. We run out ahead of God's providence. We try to control everything. We try to to make everything work instead of trusting in God. Trusting his providence, trusting in, in, in his word to us, being obedient to him. God calls us to obedience so that he can accomplish his blessing through us to the rest of the world. That's God's calling in our life. And when we are finishing life and we want to finish well, one of the most important things that we can do is turn back and look and say, let's help those next generations start strong. Let's teach them to trust in God's providence. So whether you are at the beginning of your life or at the end of your life or somewhere in between, you have a role in this. If we're going to finish well, one of the main ways we can finish well is to help the next generations start strong by trusting in the promises of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. I thank you for your promises for us, for your providence for us, for providing for us. Lord, I thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, for the blood that he shed on the cross, which provided the way of righteousness so that we could stand before you holy and righteous. Lord, may that be the thing that we teach our children most of all. May that be the thing that we trust in most of all. Not anything else. Not our own ability to control or manipulate. Not our own ability to make things happen. But trusting in the God that owns everything. Lord, I thank you that Jesus didn't just die on a cross and give us righteousness, but that he rose again. Lord, I pray that we would have a mission in our lives. If we are young, that it would be to glorify honor and honor you. If we are old, that it would be not only to glorify and honor you, but to do so by helping those who are coming after us to start strong as they follow you. Lord, help us to love our children. Help us to trust in your providence and live according to your word. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen.